The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. If you're borrowing a page of Bible, it's on page 573, by the way, uh, 1 Thessalonians. But who follows us on social media? Anybody that trendy and cool follows Redemption Bible Church? <laughs> Good. Uh, I mean, it's just one of the things that we do, but uh, um, it's a great way to stay connected, to find out, you know, what's going on, to uh, get those reminders and things as you're scrolling through your feed and, and, and whatnot. But who noticed one of our most popular hashtags, I guess, for the last year or so? Anyone notice some of those hashtags? You all familiar with that? You know, hashtag, right? Like, that's like a cool, trendy thing that people do, right? One of our hashtags, build what lasts. Anybody seen that? Anyone seen Build What Lasts uh, from it? Anybody wondered, like, what's this about? Like, let's build what lasts. Where did that uh, come from? Well, we pulled it from the, from the scriptures, actually. It's also made it onto T-shirts. We have some that we've printed up that say Build What Lasts. But uh, it's been our anthem. It's been our theme uh, as we've been watching Jesus build his church here. And uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it's really become our um, kind of our rally cry. And uh, we'll continue to be as we watch Jesus do what he's promised to do through um, our church here. And so Build What Last is not about a, a, a building, but it's about believers, right? It's not about a place, but it's about people. People are what last. It's about us personally committing to building up one another, that process of discipleship, of investing in one another, and, uh, and, and, and committing and investing to do that together as the church. And so that's what we are building. That's what we are, are growing. It's this process of sanctification as we uh, grow uh, with one another more like the Lord. And this thing, what lasts? Like I've said, this is about people. We are eternal beings. And so it is our greatest work to be pouring into people for God's glory, making these investments that will have an eternal impact. What our kids ministry workers are doing over there, uh, we are hoping will have an eternal impact as we are planting the seed into fertile soil of those little hearts over there. And same thing, what we are doing here is making these investments as we open up God's word. We want to see, we want to be impacted by it. Uh, that will uh, have its reward throughout our life here and into the life to come. And so we want this church to last, right? That's why we say build what lasts. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about any one of us. We want this church to survive long after us because it is about Christ. And so as we build what lasts, we want to pay close attention to the foundation, right? Anyone ever built a house or been in construction? What's the, the, the first step and one of the most important steps in the actual construction process beyond the preparing and planning and all that. It's laying the foundation, right? If your foundation is bad, what's that mean for the rest of the house? It's not going to go well, right? If your foundation is off, then the rest of your house is going to be, you know, uh, not square, unlevel, all these different problems. I've, I experienced this firsthand. One of our uh, cabins that we built back in 2008, 2009, when we were uh, out at Camp Eagle and starting a summer camp out there, we had this big fiasco happen when we were trying to, uh, we were pouring concrete one morning on this, uh, on this cabin that we were building, and let's just say it did not go well, and they're still causing problems with that particular cabin. It's not all level, you know, there's water spots, and where the logs were built, you can kind of see under it, because, you know, it's just, it's not good, and to try to come back and tear out the foundation without tearing down the whole house is almost impossible, and so that's why we've uh, paid a lot of attention. We've taken uh, care to lay this foundation at this stage in the church life, 
Because we aren't the first church on this earth, are we? We're not the first church around, but Jesus died for the church. He loves the church and is building the church. And so do you think he left us some blueprints? You think he left us some instruction on how to go about this? You bet he did. And that's what 1 Thessalonians is all about. 1 Thessalonians, just for some background, it's a, it was a model church for the churches of that time. You'll see here as we go through our scripture today in 1 Thessalonians 1 that they were a model church for all the churches in the regions around them. And it has now become a model church even for us several thousand years later. Paul and Silas, they planted this church on their second missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts 17. Would encourage you to do that this week just to see what, uh, what the context was. But they saw lots of salvation. They were preaching in the synagogues. Uh, the church was formed and then they were persecuted and then they were kicked out. They headed on and they uh, eventually made their way into Corinth and to other places. But that's really the typical pattern as church planning. You come, you proclaim the gospel, you face some persecution, you get beat up and you get kicked out, but then there's great fruit that is born in the adversity. And so Paul and, and Silas, they're now in Corinth, which is a, another hard city to do ministry in. If you know anything about the scriptures, Corinth in those days was bad news. Um, lots of immorality and idol worship and all kinds of things happening there. But they're doing this ministry. And Timothy now comes, another uh, person, another uh, apprentice, another minister of the gospel. He uh, brings this report back from the city of Thessalonica tells Paul, and Paul writes this letter both to commend them and to challenge them because he's building what lasts. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you're not there, and I want us to read it. And as I read it, have this question in your mind, what makes this a church worth imitating, even when they are so young in the faith and so young in their formation? So look here, we're going to take all of chapter 1 today. Follow along as I read it says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we may not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We'll stop there. So what makes them a church worth imitating? And for us particularly here, what, what can we learn from them as a church also that is young as we're seeking to build what lasts? What, how can we be a church worth imitating? What do we have to glean from them and what can we imitate as well? Well, to be a church worth imitating, like the Thessalonians, we must be leaders that pray constantly. Look at verses 1 and 2 again with me here. 
We must be leaders that pray constantly. This letter begins like a traditional letter of those times, and they actually introduce the writers initially and then the recipients. Okay, we have three guys here, and I'll talk about them in a little bit, but I actually kind of like this style of letter writing, don't you? You know, in our American, and actually this is kind of going away now, we have emails and all this, but we wait till the very end of the letter to introduce who wrote it, right? Who's like, if you got a letter, you go look at the end, oh, it's from so-and-so, and then you read the letter, because you want to know who it's from. Well, they were brilliant in those days. We've gotten a little, I don't know, something in our... Uh, letter writing, but they introduce themselves here, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and so that's, it's the, uh, the traditional biblical model here. It's Paul, the leader, and Silvanus, or Silas, just a, another name, the same guy here, and Timothy, and so it's his leader and his apprentices, and this is, this is in, uh, key for us here because this is really the biblical model of leadership development. You see this among the great leaders of the Bible. They always have other men or women that they are training up and, and, and uh, pouring into as apprentices so that way they can teach them and then send them out to continue the ministry. And so this is this is this pattern. Hey, you come with me, then watch me, and then imitate me. That's the biblical model of this leadership development. So Paul's got these guys. He's always taken along other guys on his ministry, and these guys are now with him, and they're writing back to this church, the church being the called out ones, these believers in this city in Thessalonica. So like I said, it was that region of Macedonia. Uh, at that time, it's now modern-day Greece. Uh, Macedonia is still, incidentally, a country today, but it's just a little bit north of what we know as Greece. And so here is this church in Thessalonica, in God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, a typical greeting of these believers in the Lord. And then this, uh, this really interesting, it's a common greeting that you see, grace to you and peace. But what that indicates to us is that it's a multi-ethnic fellowship, grace being a kind of a traditional Greek greeting, and then peace or shalom being a common Jewish greeting. And so a mixed multi-ethnic group of believers in this city that love the Lord and are worshiping Jesus Paul and Silas are uh, writing to them, and look at how they begin. They are constantly praying, constantly praying these prayers of thanks. Do you see this? We give thanks to God. Here, they're constantly. This is consistent with Acts, right? If you've read through the book of Acts, one of the major themes that the writer Luke points out is that these leaders, these apostles, the disciples of those days were devoted to prayer, particularly the apostles, Acts 6, verse 4, that they needed to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, constantly praying, constantly lifting up the people to the Lord. And so this is what they do. This is, this is what uh, sets leaders more apart than your influence, your business acumen, or anything. But to be a people, a spiritual leader is somebody who prays, who prays constantly for the people, you know, do you know leaders, pastors, people like this that are constantly praying? And is there someone that comes to mind that's like, yeah, that guy, that gal, she was always praying. There's somebody like that that sticks out? There's one guy, as I was thinking through this, uh, some of you know him, Nate DeConing, you know him in San Antonio? He's uh, Pastor Josh's brother, and that guy seems to always be praying. I don't know that I've had any interaction with this guy, however brief it was on the phone. I guess maybe not through text, but on the phone while we're riding a bike at church or whatnot. Somewhere in the midst of that, we're praying. We're praying. He's, he's just a prayer-filled guy and, and leading in that. And, and uh, he's a guy that I turn to and I say, hey, I need some prayer. So what's the application for us here? What do, what do, we, what do we need? We need to be a people that pray, right? 
particularly leaders that pray, not just the, when someone shares something with you, but to say, hey, let's pray right now. Not just, I'll pray for you. Commit to praying constantly, but let's pray right now. What a beautiful thing to the Lord as we live out this pillar of unceasing prayer that even in our hallways, as we're talking and fellowshipping with one another and you're sharing life and something just comes, if we see people praying, not as a show, nothing like that, but praying for one another that God would intervene, that God would be good, thanking God for doing what, uh, um, what we're called to do and to pray. What a beautiful, what a beautiful thing here. Will you help me in this too? Will you help me become a, a, a better and more systematic at praying for you? That's actually why we do these things here. You know, I mentioned it at the beginning. Maybe if you've not been here for the beginning of the service, um, you know, we pass these things out and you're wondering like, what is this? Is this like an attendance record? You know what these books really are? Uh, more than that, like I'm not like tallying and saying, hmm, the Hennessy's weren't here this week. But uh, what it is, is this is how I can constantly be in prayer for you. You filling this out, whether you write something on the bottom of it or not, I get these things at the end of the service. They're confidential. You know, nobody's reading them. You just put them back here. They get handed to me at the end of the service. And then I, throughout the week, I just take those notes. You know, these aren't just for first-time guests. This is for all of you, right? He says, we pray for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And I want to pray for all of you. Everybody that's in here this morning, this week, I want to pray for you. And you can help me by doing this. This isn't just like some shameless plug to fill out these things. This is actually a plea from your pastor to say, I want to pray for you, and this is a way that I can do it. And by writing something down, I can do it even specifically, and I can help bear the burden and bring it before the Lord with you. And so that is why we pass these out. And so if you didn't do that, and you're like, well, maybe I should do it. If they're on the end of the row, you can pass them back now. And they can go through the service and throughout the end, uh, just, just fill it out. Put your name on it. If, we got, if you don't want to put your information, that's totally fine. But by putting your name there, I just take those and I can pray. Okay, here, prayed for the Hennessy's, prayed for Sherry, prayed for Bill and the Hines. I just go through it and I pray throughout the week for you, bringing you before the Father. So you can help me do that. Can you do that? You don't have to just do that. You can also reach out to me if you want my cell phone number or whatnot. I would love to pray for you. And so let me grow and do these things. I want to be a man who prays constantly as we're commanded to do here. Praying and working, loving the Lord, leading in these things, constantly giving thanks to God for you and whatever you have. Maybe things are great in your life. Let me rejoice with you in that as well. Um, as we pray. But who are we praying for? What are we praying for? Who are these people that we pray for? Look at verse 3 here in our next point. If we want to be a church that's worth imitating, we should be believers that work hard. Look at this verse 3 here. It's, it's the, the, this, the triad, right? Our, uh, um, the triad of love, faith, and hope. But he says this, we remember before our God and Father your work of faith. So before our God and Father, this is, this is instructive for us how to pray, right? We pray to God the Father, right? He's the one who ordains all things, and we pray through Christ. He's our, uh, he's our intermediary, right? We don't need a person. We don't have to go and pray. I don't have special access to the Lord. It's not like you confess your sin to me, and I can, you know, bestow pardon or blessing upon you. But we pray to God through Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's the biblical kind of model of how our prayers are. As the Spirit who resides in us as believers, we pray Jesus is the mediator. He's the gatekeeper. He's the one that's given us the introduction into the grace in which we now stand, Romans 5 says. And so we're praying to God the Father. 
And so I, I just bring this up here. As you pray, if you want to pray like a biblical prayers, it's not a magical formula by any means, but to, if you pray to the, you know, the son or the spirit, it's not like, hey, your, you know, your prayers are like, you know, weekend or, or whatever, but just the biblical model, how Jesus taught us to pray is to the father, the one who ordains all things through Christ in the power of the spirit. And so this is how he prays. He says that before our God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And then he gets to these, these three, this kind of holy triad of, uh, of characteristics here, right? This triad of faith, love, and hope. And now look at these things. We need to be believers that work hard because there is this, you know, there's this aspect of prayers we think about and faith that, uh, that's wrongly associated with not doing anything. But here he attaches these things, that your work of faith, not a works that save us, not works that earn us anything, but it's to show that we're changed. He's saying, here's, a, here's this faith that is proving itself. It's also a labor of love, notice. This is a, a love and a work that is motivated by the great commandment, to love God and love our neighbor, right? It's motivated by, by love, not duty, not to earn the approval of that person or to earn the favor of God, but it's just motivated out of a changed heart that loves God. And also this steadfastness of hope. This is interesting, this enduring or empowering hope, this expectant thing that enables us to continue to carry on. That as we are walking through life, as we are hopeful that better days are yet ahead, we are hopeful for the long run of Jesus' return, that that is what gives us the strength and the perseverance, the steadfastness to bear up under a weight, the weight of whatever we're carrying in hope that better days are yet ahead. And where is the source of all these things? Do these things come from our own strength? No, it's, look how the text ends, right? In whom? You can say it, in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? In the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our source. He's our example of all these things, of our faith, our hope, and our love. It's not in ourselves. And so these are the things that we can pray for one another. These are the things that I will pray for you this week. I will give thanks for you who, who are, are writing your names down and who are here this morning. I will give thanks to God for these things in your life. You know someone who loves his or her job? Have you ever seen the, the, the difference maker? You know, if maybe you've had a teacher, one who uh, really loves her job and another that maybe doesn't, you know, that they're just, they're just, they've been teaching for decades, right? They're as consistent as the sunrise and every morning that school's in session, boom, they're there in their classroom. What's the difference? What's the difference? Well, they love their job. They persevere even with, you know, unruly children. They have this sense of purpose and a belief in their work and a love for the people and a hope for the impact. With, they have this attitude that is like, you know, I can't believe that I get paid to do this. That I can have at least a piece of the impact on a future generation. It's a difference maker. You know, and that's, that's just one example. We have teams of volunteers in this church already that, that embody this. Our facilities crew, our production team, our worship team, they were here at 7.30. Some of them were outside in the rain putting up signs and things this morning. And you know why they did it? I didn't ask them individually, but I, can, I think I can attest to this. It's because they love the Lord. Because they believe in the ministry. They believe in the mission that we're about. They love you. 
and they are hopeful for the impact here. They didn't set up chairs in these pews just for their health, but they, they set them up because they knew that people would be here to hear God's word, to worship the one true and living God, and that that would have an impact. And they can't believe that they get to be a part of seeing God do this. And so getting up early, serving like that, to, you know, so nobody would notice, but because of these things. They believe in that, right? They're serving the Lord in these ways. I think we ought to give them a, you know, a little show of our, our thanks, shouldn't we? Should we just say thank you for doing that, worship team, facilities team, those people that came early? Right. I know they don't do it for that, but I am thankful for them. I'm thankful for those guys and gals that get up early, that sacrifice on the Lord's day to facilitate a, uh, a, a place for us to come together and worship the one true and living God. That's what this is for. And as I pray, that's what I pray. God, thank you for that. Would you give them the endurance as they go and as they, as they, as they do this week in and week out? Would you add people to their, to their number? Would you uh, give more rotations to give them a break, God? Would you see what they're doing? But here's something, you don't have to wait. You can come and be a part of it as well. You don't have to sit on the, on the bench, but come on and play. And come play with people who love to play. They love, we have all kinds of fun. And you never know, sometimes breakfast tacos might show up or someone brings donuts or whatever. But you can serve in those capacities if you're like, well, the morning, that's just way too early. But you can come, we've got a coffee team. If you're like a coffee connoisseur, man, come serving coffee, ushers, hospitality, kids ministry. If you believe in what God is doing here in the mission and you want to be a part of it, you can do that even today. Just mark it on your connection card. And I'll call you this week and we can talk about it. But Does that sound good? We believers that work hard, that believe in the ministry, we work hard, we also grow joyfully. Look at these next verses. They're closely connected. Not only are we believers that work hard, but we're believers that grow joyfully. Look in verse 6. He, he says, uh, these things come out. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so this is who he's talking about. He's reminding us, hey, this is who we are. We are believers. We are brothers and sisters who've been unconditionally chosen, not based on anything that we've done. Not because God saw us and was like, yeah, I want that guy on my team and that guy on my team, but not her or him or those. Not anything like that. But God was the only one with a say who's in his family. And that's beautiful when it's held in the right light. It's beautiful for us as we see it. As much as we might want to be added into his family or we couldn't earn it, we couldn't buy it, we couldn't force our way in, but God just in his mercy and his abundant love for you and I who are in this family, God, he, he has brought us in. This is who it is. God brings that seed of faith to life through the word, through this, look at verse five, because our gospel came to you not only in word it comes as unapologetic preachers who are men of integrity look at here these marks of this biblical preaching it says you've been believers faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god we know that romans 10 but he says this hear this gospel the good news of jesus christ do you know what the gospel is do you know and love the gospel raise your hand if you know and love what the gospel is the good news of jesus god came in christ to die, to be our substitute, to stand in our place and take the penalty for what we deserved. We could not earn it. We just said, we, we, we just found out from verse four that we couldn't earn this and yet God knew that problem and came and fixed it for us. He came and fixed the problem for us by sending his son who was the only good person to live who died an unjust death for you and I, taking the penalty that we deserved 
by recognizing that and repenting of our sin and saying, God, I know that I cannot please you. I can't do anything, but you've sent Christ. So my faith is in him, and I know that the only way to be right with you and to spend an eternity with you, the only way to have a purpose in my life that, that will uh, go beyond these, these days here, the only way that I can have that is through Christ. And if you don't know the good news, if you don't know the gospel, turn to the Lord today. Don't let another day go by where you live a life without purpose, but a life in the gospel, knowing these things. And here's what it comes through comes through this. Our gospel came to you not only in word. Marks of biblical preaching has to be the word. Okay? If a preacher stands and he's not opening God's word to you and letting it out, it's not true, genuine preaching. It's words, it's, you know, maybe motivational, inspirational, but the power comes through the word. The power comes through the word. Second mark here, look, it comes with power. It's not wimpy. It's not uh, just like this, you know, kind of talk, but it's in power because it comes through the power and the authority of God's word. What does it say next? In the Holy Spirit. It's Holy Spirit-imbued preaching. It's, 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 it's unction. It's God taking the word, these words, by his Holy Spirit and pressing it upon your hearts. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of, of a generation or several generations past, it said that as he mounted the steps, he's a big kind of rotund guy, had multiple steps to get up to his, his pulpit there in London and uh, no microphones, no nothing, but he had a booming voice that could preach out to several thousand people and nobody in the room could not hear him. Everybody could hear him. But it said that as he would take those steps into the pulpit every week, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit because what I do, what anybody does up here, if God's Spirit is not blessing it and if God's Spirit is not impressing it upon your heart and showing you where maybe you are uh, out of line and, and uh, taking you to where you are in line and or encouraging you for, the, for how you are walking with Him, if He's not doing that, then it's, what is it for? But our preaching has to be from the Word, in power, with the Holy Spirit and what finally? With full conviction, with full conviction. I'm not a charlatan, I'm not up here to, to uh, be skeptical, but to preach with conviction. A man must, must come up here knowing that this is God's word, that I would not go to anywhere else, that I would be leading you astray to take you to anywhere else, but this is how God's word comes. These are the marks of biblical preaching, of the word, of power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction, all backed by a life of integrity. Look at what Paul says there. He's like, just look at my life. He's, remember, he's gone. He's, he's preached. He's, he saw ministry. He was kicked out of the city. And he's saying, remember, remember how I lived my life. He's a guy that can say that. I'm, I, I, I'm. But it's backed by a life of integrity so as not to undermine the word. Who's heard preachers like that? And unfortunately, they exist. They come and then they live a life of secret sin. But here's a life that's open Preachers that are growing joyfully along with their believers, along with their church, along with the rest of us. When that happens, growth in the faith takes place through pain, right? When that, when we have the word that is unfailing, that, that seed of faith that busts through the shell, busts through the soil, and comes up and is exposed to the elements, because look here at verse 6. Here he's commending them. They are growing in the faith, but they are also growing joyfully through much affliction. 
says, you've seen my manner of life, but he's now commending them that you've been growing joyfully. You've been chosen of God, you've heard the word, and now you've become imitators in us and of the Lord, for you received the word. You didn't reject it, but you received it in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He's saying you, you embraced it for what it was with joy. This, uh, this expository preaching, this, this letting the word out is a part of it, but it's also believers who are expository listeners and doers who are saying, God, what do you have to teach me today? I want to know. I'm here not just for uh, an entertaining hour or 75 minutes or however long the service is, but I'm here because I want you to teach me even if it causes pain, even if it means that I have to sacrifice, even if it means that it's going to make me really unpopular or live entirely countercultural. Saying we are people, you've become people that grow joyfully even through the kinks, even through the difficult things. And, and that's the mark, that's a, that's a mark, that's a sign that somebody is saved. What you see here in these uh, verses here also are something that's very helpful. Now, we only God knows the heart, but there are some signs, which we see from these verses, that signs that you and I, the indicators that we can know that somebody is a believer, all right? The Bible gives those. Ultimately, hear me say this, and you should know this, only God knows the heart, right? Shake your head. Only God knows the heart, okay? We can't, but there are indicators of those things, right? There are indicators of how we are saved. The first one is that we confess Jesus as Lord, Right? Nobody apart from the Spirit of God can confess Jesus as Lord. And so someone who is a believer will confess him. There's a difference between someone, you could probably ask any Texan, and they would, if you were to go up to them and say, who is Jesus? They would have an answer, right? It's not like he's some unknown figure to us like you might find in, a, a, in another country or in a tribe or something. There's, but you would say, oh yeah, he's, he was God, right? He was the Savior of the world. He died for sins. There's a difference you know, someone who is truly saved, someone whose heart has been regenerated is someone who says, yeah, and Jesus is Lord of my life. He's the boss. He's the master. He's my savior. He died for my sin. But it's also another mark is somebody who's hungry for the word. Somebody who's hungry for the word. Do you see this here? Is that somebody, when, when we're saved, our appetite changed. Right? Our, the patterns of our life change. There's, there's something about us that, that is intrigued to want to know this book, some more voracious than others, but there's a, there is a genuine desire to be in God's word, to want to grow, to want to change. That, the desires that we never had before. I mean, I've talked to countless people who are like, you know what, I breezed through high school and I never read one textbook. And then I got saved in college and all I want to do now is read the Bible and read books about Christian living. And I, I never read before in my life. And now I can't stop reading. It's a mark. God's done something in their life. James McDonald, the pastor, uh, that he, he says this. He says uh, that you can be sure if your faith hasn't changed you, then it probably hasn't saved you. Because this is this next point here. It's, a, it's a, the fruit of a changed life as well. Not only are you hungry for, for the word, there's also the fruit of a changed life. Patterns change, habits change, some immediately, some more, you know, are more difficult, but we begin to spend our time differently. The fruit of the spirit is now true of us, not the, not the deeds of the flesh as Galatians 5 talks about. Those things like love, joy, peace, patience, patience righteousness, self-control, those things where we once could not say no to, now we have this power to say no to. 
we see this changed life. And lastly, we see perseverance through trials. This is one of the ultimate uh, uh, tests, one of the things that we see here. You see it in the parable of the soils. Jesus talks often about it. We see it here. They've received the the word through much affliction. You can tell where somebody's foundation is. You can tell which soil that they are planted in when the elements hit. When tragedy hits, when grief hits, when those things that, that, that wreck us and lay us low on the ground, what are we left clinging to? Are we cursing God and shaking our fist at him? Are we, or are we persevering? Are we, are we enduring? Are we saying, God, I don't necessarily understand this, but I know that you are good, that you are sovereign, and I will still follow you even though this stinks right now. There's perseverance through that. There's endurance. There's, there's a clinging to the faith that we have. And that is one of the, 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 the greatest indicators of somebody's walk with the Lord. Are they still, are they, are they walking with him? Are they, are they embracing the gospel? They love him a lot, even through much affliction. Because our lives, they change pretty drastically when we encounter God, right? How could they not? When we've encountered the God of the universe, how could our lives not change? How could they not be altered? You know, sometimes that change is exhilarating, right? You know, it's like a, a, a boy who scores his first touchdown. Suddenly he, he eats, sleeps, and breathes football, right? It's, it's like the, you know, the, the, the kid who, who loves to go hunting and he's, you know, he, he gets his first one and now he just eats, sleeps, and breathes. There's exhilarating. The change happens and so now things in his life have changed. Sometimes it changes through traumatic things, right? We lose a, a, a child, we lose a loved one, and suddenly you begin to cherish those living ones in a new way. These are indicators that believers were growing joyfully and so can we be a, a church that grows joyfully? And we grow through both the awe and the, plain, and the pain, you know? This is why we prioritize the word in our life, right? This is why we, why we prioritize it, because we need this fertilizer. We need the goodness of God. We need the word in our life. And if we don't have, if you're like, well, I just don't have time for this personal devotion. I don't have time to, to, to get to, to church. Then, well, your priorities are mixed up. It's not optional thing. It's not like, well, on Saturday night, Sunday morning, well, should we go, you know? Some of our affliction might just be the demanding schedules that seem to just want to push everything out, right? Push the priorities away. That's maybe our affliction versus the persecution and the outright, you know, oppression that some people face, like the Chinese who have to walk for hours in the darkness for fear of being caught just to hear a little bit of God's word on occasion, you know, maybe Netflix is our affliction, right? Binge watching. I mean, I'm guilty of this. Staying up late, watching. It's like a show. We're like, oh, I can't get enough of this. I can't wait till tomorrow to get to the next episode. I've already watched 17, but I need to get to the 18th. But those things, you know, may we, may, may we push those out. May we prioritize our growth in the Lord. Like these believers who grew joyfully in the faith making them an exemplary church to those that were around him and to us today. Let's keep going on. Where do they go from here? Not only are they exemplary, not only are they growing in their faith personally, but they're a church worth imitating because they're believers with a winsome reputation. Did you notice this here in verse 7? 
that you became an example to all the believers. Do you think Paul's just embellishing a little bit? I mean, maybe, but I think he's true here. He's passed around. He's, he's, been, he's been moving along from city to city, planting churches, engaging with believers. And as he's going through these massive regions, through these counties, it's like, I've been traveling all throughout Texas. And your church, you people, you believers, you keep coming up. Your name is being mentioned. You are exemplary in the faith. And so it's being spread through it. How they, how they witnessed, how they, how they came to the Lord amidst much affliction. It says not only has it sounded forth, not only has the word sounded forth of the Lord, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. He's like, we don't even have to say anything. Your reputation precedes you and how you love the Lord, and how you're changed life. You see this here? Look at how verse 9 ends. It's, it's, it's not only in their, their witness, but how they welcome people. Verse 9 begins, right? For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Like how Paul and Silas, how they were received and brought in by the church, how they were welcomed, how they were exemplary in their hospitality. But also how they, look here, how their, their, their testimony you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That there is the summary of all of our testimonies. Somebody asks you how you're saved, it's like, well, I turned from idols and to God. Away from one thing, you know, maybe their idols were particular wood, stone, statues, or whatever. Our idols are different. We idolize sports teams. We idolize ourselves. We idolize, you know, TV. We idolize, you know, you name it, our kids, our, our job, a host of different things. But you know what? I've turned from them because I don't find my purpose in those and I've turned to the one true and living God. That's the summary. That's our, that's our, our testimony here. And they now have this great expectation. You see this here? How they waited, turned from idols to God to serve him and to wait for his son from heaven. Not only did it transform their lives here and now radically, but now they're also waiting. And how they're waiting is exemplary. Because sometimes you, you see the, the, the differences here, right? And we'll get into this. First Thessalonians is going to talk more about this in the later chapters here. But there's, there's kind of these things as we talk about the end, you know, in Christ's return. Some people just like get all fretted and it's like freezes them. Like, well, is the Lord going to return today? Like they're just like paralyzed by it. And others are on the other side, and they just don't even think about it. Like, yeah, I just live my life, you know, whatever. God may come back or whatnot. Um, But it's not even on their radar on how they're to live. And yet here, the Thessalonians are, they are exemplary in this and how they're waiting for his son from heaven, but not just waiting, they're working while they wait. They are doing what God has called them to do here and today with this eager expectation that God is going to come back. This uh, Jesus who will come back from heaven, the one whom he raised from the dead and who he's delivered, he's delivered us from the wrath that is to come. That has motivated them. They don't longer fear death. They no longer fear the wrath of God for their sin because now they are waiting eagerly for the future hope, our eternity with God, worshiping Christ for eternity. These are, this is, contributes to their winsome reputation. It's attractive. People want to be about it. And, and, and their manner of life is spreading. Like We want to be like those guys because they love the Lord and they've, they've got something figured out. And Paul, as he's seen these churches, as he's planted, he's been in a lot of cities, he's like, they've got something going on. They've got it figured out here. You ever met a family like this? You ever met a group of people like this? 
The family that introduced Aaron and I were exemplary in all of these things. Actually, the ones that kind of spurred me on to church planting. I met them in Wisconsin. They planted a church in this very small rural town of about 1,000 people in uh, the poorest county in Wisconsin. And uh, planted Marquette Community Church. Their last name is the Schmitz. And uh, they actually met uh, Aaron when their dad was in seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary. So my wife, Aaron, uh, her family was, lived in Dallas. And, uh, and so they went to the same church, kids the same age or whatnot. And then when the family, their dad graduated, they moved to Wisconsin. And then I met them. They have three sons. And so um, they, we just became, became, became friends. And so I met Aaron then when I was in high school. We got married later after college, whatnot. We didn't date through then, but if you want to hear the story of that, I'll tell you some other time, but um, it's the story of God's goodness and all that, but this, the Schmidt family was just this. They, they were, they had this winsome reputation, this faith in this community, this, this small rural town and all the little ones around it of, of true, genuine believers. It's salvation happening, you know, this, they, when they, uh, they actually just uh, left after 17 years of ministry uh, there in this little town of a thousand people, and they had 300 people in church on a Sunday, and just God doing incredible things and saving people uh, left and right, and just an incredible ministry that God was blessing through the faithful preaching of God's word, and laboring day in and day out uh, in that city and in the county around them. They were so welcoming. That's part of the reason why I got to know them. They were like second parents to me. I mean, I was always in their house. Their reception man, I would come, and it was like, you know, the long-lost child that, that uh, was coming over to their house. And there was always people, always a buzz of activity. Their home was just always open. You know, at the, at the drop of a dime, you'd come up, and, you know, they would share their food, share their home, and, and uh, there were always people coming over. And just this eager expectation for the Lord to come. I mean, one of the songs, it, it, in my memory, I know it wasn't every week, but it seems like every time I was in church with them, we always would sing that song, Days of Elijah. You remember that song? Sometimes it's still sung, you know, Behold, he comes, I'm not going to sing for you, you know, Riding on the clouds, remember that? That song? It seemed like we we're always singing that. I can just see them just praising the Lord in that song. And just singing out, crying out with this eager expectation that the Lord was going to return and these, this family, Kurt and Lori Schmidt, exemplary, love them a ton. They are believers that I want to imitate. That's a, it's a, they, they're, they're people that Aaron and I have now uh, modeled our life and our ministry after just as uh, uh, opening our own home and things. So how do we put this into practice? You thought of that? How do we become a winsome, have a winsome reputation? How do we be people whose faith is known? Well, let's be open with our witness. Open with our witness. This is the faith portion, which you're going to see here. How do we do this? Well, it really boils down to faith, love, and hope. And in following their example here, let's be open in how we live our life. There should be no doubt among your coworkers, no doubt among your neighbors that those people are believers. Maybe not the crazy ones, but, you know, that's, they, uh, they, that you're not one of the crazy ones. Um, I mean, that's oftentimes probably would just get associated if you're, you know, genuine with your faith. So just own it, embrace it, and don't actually be crazy. But, uh, but there should be no doubt about your believers, or that you're a believer. You, you work with some of those people, you're like, you know, I think they are. You know, they mentioned Jesus like once or twice, but, you know, but let there be no doubt. That, let you be open in your witness. 
that people just know these things and, and that you're talking about the Lord and you're, 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 that they know that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, that there's no doubt about that. Let's be open with our home, open with and how we love people. This is the biblical concept of hospitality. And what it is, is it's like, I want you to come into my personal space. Like our homes are, that's kind of like our, our safe zone, right? If we were kids playing tag, that's the base, right? We Like all day we run around at work or school or whatever we have going on and we come home. It's like, all right, I'm on base. Can't touch me, you know, until our kids come home and then they're, you know, <laughs> doing it. But it's like our personal space. But by opening our home, this reception that the, that the Thessalonians modeled, this hospitable heart that they had was the act of saying, I want you to come into and see my imperfections. I want you to come close, come into my base, come in here. You are safe here, you are loved here, you are not judged here, but come in, share a meal, come share whatever it may be. Just You are always welcome here. I'm not going to put on a show, I'm not here to entertain you, but come and I want to genuinely get to know you. I'm not going to impress you, there's nothing hidden, just come on. You know, we're house, we may have time to pick up, but we might not. Our laundry may be laying on the ground and it's okay. It's okay. People's clothes get dirty, right? All the wives are like, oh, why do you say that? No, my husband's never going to pick up his stuff. Husbands, pick up your laundry, put it in the laundry basket, help your wife out, okay? But let's be open with that, because here's the reality. All of our homes are an annex of Redemption Bible Church. We don't have a permanent home, and the church isn't about one big building anyways, but each of our homes are just that, do you represent Christ? If you're, you know, uh, if you are here with us, then you're home. You are a representative of what God is doing through this church, through this gathering of believers. So, who can you have over this week? Who can you invite? Who can you, you know, who can you bring into your space? And maybe it's your home. Maybe it's just your life. Maybe, you know, who who do you want to take out to coffee or a meal or go to the park with? But who can you invite in? Maybe it's not your home. It's you don't have the space. I get that stuff. But who can you bring close? Who's who's can you receive? And lastly, open with our expectation. This is what ties to hope, right? We are looking forward to better things yet ahead. You know, what a, what a great response we can have in the midst of all these tragedies, all these disasters, all the things that are happening now that we need to respond to and, uh, and to help meet the physical needs of the here and now. But what an open door to proclaiming the hope with which we have. I mean, what a, what a great opportunity to, to point out Romans 8, that even creation itself is groaning, longing for Christ's return like we are. And so we're going to continue to work. We're going to continue to meet the needs now. We're going to continue to do what God has called us to do here and now, but with this eager expectation that one day it won't be like this. One day we won't fear flooding or tornadoes or hurricanes or anything like that. We won't fear shootings and we won't fear, you know, uh, traffic accidents. We won't fear kidnapping and all the tragedy and disaster that happens. One day, and a great day that will be, those things will be gone, right? That's the hope that we have as believers. That's, what we, that's why we are winsome with our witness and winsome with our reputation. That's why we are attractive and we want this type of, of life is what is appealing to a watching world, that we are, we are unfazed by these things. We are moved, we are motivated, but we are not crushed. We are not led to despair. It's different for us, and this stands out in a world that's controlled by fear. It's paralyzed by it. 
And so this begs the question, what do I want to be known for? What do I want to be known for? What is my reputation? What do I want to be known for as a person who loves the Lord? A person who's gripped by fears? What do we as a church want to be known for? Can we have a reputation even this young as the church in Thessalonica had? They were commended for these things as a young church. Barely months old, and yet here they are as held out as a church worth imitating for them in those days and now here for us. And so as we build what lasts, as we are a church that that seeks to follow the scriptures, as we are a church not because we want a great reputation around town or want to be the church to go to or anything like that, it is not that at all. It is just that we want to be a people both individually and corporately together that are known as a people that love the Lord. And we are known as leaders that are praying constantly. And we are known as a people that are working hard, that are serving the Lord, that are are growing in their faith joyfully, even through affliction, and have this winsome reputation, all for God's glory and the advancement of the gospel. Can we be a people like that? I pray that we are. Would you join me in praying for that?